You're listening to Wow Ergonomics with Graham Cove and Stephen Howe. Good afternoon, everyone. It's midday. It's Wednesday, which can only mean one thing. It's Wow Ergonomics. So hello, everybody. And we've got a full house today. Look at this, Stephen. Hello. Guests galore. Guests coming out of our ears today, Graham. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about all things flexible and i don't mean by that me getting my legs over the top of my head because that's just never going to happen especially on air all right uh we're talking about flexible working or hybrid working or agile working as some people still want to call it um and we can talk actually at some point about all of those different terminologies because i think in a way, the fact that we're now using all of these wonderful different semantics and words is probably quite confusing to people, um, and it might be good to break those down. So we are joined by uh, Jill Scott. Hi, Jill. Thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> like to see you've got a very, very white room there, which is great. I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I could never keep anything as clean as that in this house. Uh, with all the young children um, i have to keep my kids out and the dog out so this is my space they're not allowed in or although the little dog creeps in every now and then and tries to get in here but no <laughs> and we're also joined by nicola thanks nicola Pease, for joining Hi. us um and again actually your house looks absolutely spotless i don't know how you people do it it's because you can't see the devastation on the floor behind me and we're just at the right angle like the floor is covered in lego and toys and all sorts of stuff but you can't see well, it so as as Stephen knows that's why i have a sheet here um, <laughs> behind here is complete chaos it's like the the end of the world behind here uh, but you know i can get away with all sorts of murder for that so uh we're talking about flexible working Stephen, i know this is something that we've talked about over the, the past few weeks um, in terms of wow ergonomics. What what new stories did really catch your eye over the last few weeks? And then perhaps we can get comments from sort of Jill and Nicola on those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know we've we've touched on some of these previously, Graham, but I think they've sort of been the, the sort of the cornerstone of our conversations. I mean, the one that really I, I mean, two, I think from was it last week or the week before, one was particularly was nationwide building society there where they were talking about 13,000 staff, um, you know, flexible, don't have to work from the office. Um, the other one I thought was quite interesting was TUI, um, the travel agents who, you know, the the article was quite deceptive because the headline was TUI are closing 46 retail stores. So obviously, you know, we, you know, the theme of devastation to the high street is something that's been going on for a long time. But when you dug further down the article, what they were saying was, is they weren't looking to make people redundant. They wanted to use the expertise of those advisors, but they could work from home. So that was the really interesting thing, how there was that transfer of role from the high street with the sort of doom and gloom. But the reality was, is that there still would be a lot of people employed by the business from those stores. And they were looking to keep their expertise, not lose staff, keep the staff, but get them working in a different place. So I think I think Nationwide and TUI. The other one, I think, was Santander, which I can't remember whether, Graham, this story sort of broke after we, we spoke last week. But they were talking about, again, reducing office space, not necessarily reducing headcount, but giving people who were working in one office that was closing the opportunity to work part of their week in another office. So I think they're probably the three main the three main stories that I guess sort of formed our conversation over the last two sessions of Graham, I think. Well, I think there's those three. And then 
as a counteract to those three as well. I think it was the, all of the stories that came from Goldman Sachs. Mm. Um, oh dear, what happened there? <laughs> that that is, I mean that that really is contentious as well. So there was the the story in particular, I think, of the ninety five hour ninety five hour week. Yes. Week, yeah. Who who has ninety five hours in a week to work? Uh, and why? Why are you working ninety-five yeah. hours in a week? The, these are these are questions that we will now start to debate. So, um, ladies, Jill, Nicola, as I say, thanks for joining us. Just to give people a little bit of background in case they've not heard of you before. Um, perhaps starting with Jill, tell me why you're interested in flexible working. Oh well, Graham, I've actually been interested in flexible working for over twenty years. This is not a new subject to me at all, and I have myself been working um, remotely, flexibly for all of that time. And to me, this is like just a fantastic opportunity for people to see how it can really work. Because all of those people who a year ago were saying, oh, there's all sorts of jobs that can't be done remotely or flexibly, or it's all too difficult, suddenly had to change their mind overnight, didn't they? And you know what? We're all still here and it's all worked out. And have there been many stories of disaster and devastation because people haven't made it work? No, of course they haven't, because most people are very sensible and adapt to the situation. And this sort of mindset that says, oh, I need everyone in one place at one time and we'll all cram onto public transport at the same time and we'll all cram into the same space to do any type of work, whether or not it's sensible for it to be done in that collective way, is so old fashioned, isn't it? We have so much technology. We have so many more tools that are available for collaboration and working remotely. And what I think is really funny is Goldman Sachs are international. So they should be at the forefront of, of this revolution that says we need actually to recruit from wherever people are the best talent. And to do that, flexible working is the model. What's not the model is working ridiculous hours where I absolutely guarantee you half of those hours are not productive. Nobody mm. can work productively. So you might be churning out the hours, but I honestly guarantee if they did a proper research project on the output of those people. Look, I also saw a statistic that said um, about 20% of them are off with burnout at any given time in certain offices at Goldman Sachs. And it's like, do you know what? You need to sort of look at this side of the equation and this side of the equation before you think you're doing it right. So sorry, Absolutely. I've taken up a lot of time now. I should give Nicola an opportunity to speak. That's fine. <laughs> Nicola's coming now. So Nicola, <laughs> introduce yourself, please. And, and just, yeah. just say why you come to the fray in terms of uh, flexible work. <laughs> So flexible working is just my bag. That's what I do. So I um I set up my company end of 2019 to um to sort out people and help them get make flexible working work for them. So um slightly before the pandemic. And for me, it started, I've been doing this, I was working out actually. The first time I did this type of thing, we called it a working smarter project, which was about empowering people to work from anywhere, really, wherever, when, where, and how you were going to be most productive and effective, that's where you can work. And it was back in 2014. So the first time I did this was seven years ago. And similar to you, Jill, what I'm really loving at the minute is 
Whereas previously, all, the work has been pushing water uphill and it's that, been that battle with people of like, oh, it'll never work for our industry or it'll never work for these type of roles or we don't trust our people. Like, what if, what if they're taking their dogs for a walk in the day? Like, how will I know what they're doing? Um, <laughs> and all of those objections have just been wiped out in this last year because we've been forced to kind of change and, and change the way we work. And so, like you were saying, it's made us all go, oh, the world didn't end. Most <laughs> companies still survived. Most people were still productive. Hmm, maybe there's something in this. And I think for me, what I'm enjoying seeing right now is the companies that are starting to listen to their employees and go in. Actually, yeah, a lot of people do want to carry on working from home some part of the time. Yeah. How can we how can we enable that? How can we make that happen? Um uh, unless obviously you're Goldman Sachs who wants everybody back in their office. Although I did, um, interestingly, I did read or I saw someone else on LinkedIn saying that it's no wonder they want people back in the office when they've just spent a billion pounds on refurbishing their Canary Wharf offices, <laughs> including um, adding sleep pods because they don't literally do not want you to go home. Um, well, <laughs> it's no surprise then that they're saying working from home is abhorrent, is it? Um, Why they, bother with a home at all when you can live permanently on this and sleep oh, yeah. in little Why bother? That sounds like Why a massively bother? desirable lifestyle, doesn't it? You know, I'm sure everyone's going to be on board with, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, and then I don't know if you saw in the news last night, sorry, this is going to be a Goldman Sachs bashing, but um, uh, last night they I saw that then... Nicola, don't worry about it, they deserve it. Um that um, the, the managers, the team leaders of those junior staff who had been complaining about the 95 hour week, out of their own pockets, provided oh, yeah. of food and snacks. Yeah. And I'm like, Goldman Sachs <laughs> and the amount of money that they have mm. and the profit that they make. And they're not even willing to go, do you know what? We'll do something nice for those people. It's come out of their pockets of the people, the managers of, of, the, of those teams. Mm. I was just like, it says it all about the culture of Goldman Sachs. Well, let's just make it absolutely clear that we're, we're not against Goldman Sachs in any shape or form. Um, and, and if someone from Goldman Sachs wants to come and give us an alternative viewpoint on this, uh, they're more than welcome to, to come on air and, and give us an alternative viewpoint anytime. If not today, they can come on another week and do it. Um, I'd be really interested in having that conversation. Um, Graham, I'm just going to say you would be as well. Yeah, there was two things about that Goldman Sachs. I think we might have touched on it as well, but it was almost as if this 95-hour week was some sort of badge of honour. It was oh, no, something to be yeah. proud of. I mean, I'm yeah. it was almost, well, okay, I don't get that. But also, we were saying as well about how people's performance will decline as the, you know, the more hours they work. If these people are in charge of billions of billions of pounds of investments, how is their work performance when they hit week hour 86, 87? 88 are they then making the wrong decisions because they're being overworked and i think you called it out graham why don't they it, you know these are very well paid jobs why not work half the hours and employ two people mm. shocking idea absolutely <laughs> shocking idea just imagine that two people yeah. doing one role um <laughs> sounds like a job share to me <laughs> it does doesn't it does sound like a really good idea um so yeah we're going to go on to some of the things that were brought up and i'm i have to apologize to nicola at this stage because um i did obviously share that bbc story about um mm. nationwide uh early in the morning to you um, and you you did a a post on it um, and I've just watched over the last week or so as more and more and more and more and more people have commented on it. Yeah. Um, 
and I've done similar polls myself on this whole subject, and of course, people have opinions uh, to this sort of thing. So, so one of the one of the kind of counter arguments that comes back is, but these people are earning really good money. They must be earning really good money. You know, does it matter? Does it matter? Can't they do? Can't they do their you know ninety five hour week? Surely, in a couple of years' time, they'll be able to retire. Um, any comments on that? Oh, or, they'll, or they'll burn out, I would go for, rather than likely to retire in two years, more likely to burn out in two years. Um, I think it's, um, I think, yes, they are very well paid, but I don't, it sort of strikes, it, the, it strikes me as a way of saying, well, people are only motivated by money, so it doesn't matter, we can, we can flog them to death as long as we're paying them enough money, and it's not about the, you know, the well-being or the motivation of, of people even yeah. to have something that's fulfilling and have a life outside of work like if you're working yeah. 95 hours a week that doesn't leave a lot of time for any other sort of life does it even sleeping but yeah. the other yeah. thing is however highly paid you are you're still a person you you work-life balance is not just for people who are lower paid is it mm. if, if it is there's something wrong with that whole model isn't there they are still people however much you get paid you still only have 24 hours in your day the same as all the rest of us do so this idea that somehow oh well it, it doesn't matter because you are being financially compensated for me is a, a totally wrong approach to the whole culture that seems to say Oh well, if we throw enough money at it, it doesn't matter. You know, those it's it's weird, isn't it? At the bottom of the bar, we're like, oh well, people are disposable. Does that also mean you know people are disposable anyway, providing you compensate them? I mean, Merrill Lynch actually had someone die from overwork, didn't they, in two thousand seventeen? Yeah. Um, yeah. And what we learned since then, those well, those high performing people just seem to be saying, oh well. There's always more people in the pipeline. It's about a culture that sees people as disposable. That's what's wrong. Not just Merrill Lynch. You know, I know we're talking about them and, and we're talking about Goldman Sachs. Not just those, but that whole culture that says money is the answer, uh, it, it's just wrong, isn't it? Time yeah. is the issue there. And I used to as see Nicholas this. Said, I... You can do nothing, can you, uh, if yeah. you're working 95 hours a week? That's your I was just thinking, Bill, if, yeah, if you do some mental maths on this, and my maths mm. could be wrong, 95 hours, that's doing a, a 7 in the morning till 8.30 in the evening, seven days a week. Is that mm. about right? About 30 and a half? You know, yeah. when you, you think of 95, break it down into every single working day, you're starting at 7, finishing at half 8 every single day. And I bet that doesn't include the commute to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's just ridiculous, isn't it? There is so you no literally one literally get that's out of desirable. your bed. You yeah. get out of your bed. You roll into work. Yeah. Right. Do, well, do your commute. Roll into work, etc. Finish. Yeah. Finish work. Roll home. Roll get into bed. bed. You probably have a couple of hours sleep. Get up again. So mm -hmm. you're up at. You must be up at five, mustn't you? Really, yeah. five five thirty. By the time you add your commute on, unless you live really close to Canary Wharf, which I suspect most people don't, uh, and then you get home. If you've got a family, how much of them are you actually going to see? And if you're working seven days a week, you never get that break, do you? Uh, I can't imagine anybody that's working a ninety-five hour week has got a family. It's I can't so imagine. Uh, and, and if they have, 
They're not going to keep the point? their family. They're What's not going the to keep point? their family. They're absent all the time, aren't they? I'd love to know. I'd love to know if that if that's a thing and it's been going on for a while. I'd love to know the divorce rate. Anyway, yeah. I, it just it just wouldn't it just would not happen. <laughs> you know yeah. oh hi dear oh hi bye again how you are know? you actually because i've not seen you um for the last <laughs> oh, no, I, I know i saw you for that hour about yeah. three weeks ago <laughs> I, I remember you now that's what i mean seriously that's what it would be like wouldn't it? yeah and no that, absolutely look let's take it terrible let's, let's take this away from the goldman sachs yeah. uh, scenario because <laughs> that, that 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 is uh, that's potentially madness um uh but even so, there's still an awful lot of people working really long hours, et cetera, um, on, a, on a day to day basis. You know, for me, I think it just goes back to finance again. I don't actually understand how for any business it makes them more money. It's what Stephen said earlier. How does that make them any more money by employing people to work so long in a day that actually they start to become unproductive at the point at which anybody becomes unproductive for you then actually you're losing money by employing that person it makes okay there's there's slightly more paperwork to do etc there's there's slightly more um national insurance uh, bits of um coding that you have to do to put another person on the payroll but when you're talking especially when you're talking a large company like that that's all kind of taken care of anyway What's it matter to actually give part of that role, as you say, job share with another person, keep keep the teams fresh and really have people that are coming to work wanting to be on it, you know, wanting to do a really good job and feeling like they've got a life outside of work as well. Mm -hmm. I just, well, of course, technically, they're probably not on 95-hour contracts. They will be on... Well, I don't know if we've still got the working time directive, but we should have. Uh, so this shouldn't be on 95 hour a week contracts. But doesn't it become the culture that there's an expectation that everyone will work huge numbers of additional hours and their overall salary is reasonably good to reflect that. But I'm not sure they would see it as, oh, well, actually, if we split this job in two, we would have people work in sensible hours. They see it as a cost, don't they? We would have yeah. to pay somebody else to do the hours. Whereas, as we've been saying, I don't think that takes account of the effectiveness, the burnout, you know, all of those things that are direct human costs. You know, mm -hmm. even if, even if you think, oh, this model is fine, it's actually not really cost effective if they really analyse the amount of work people can possibly do. So, well, you, I one mean, could I argue mean, it's modern slave labour, isn't it? Yeah, the Nationwide are actually a really good example because they've always been a great employer and they understand that you are only as good as your people and protecting, I mean, Nicola mentioned wellbeing, that, that doesn't seem to be on the agenda with some companies. And that's the important part, isn't it? If you nurture and support and understand uh, the needs and the well-being of your staff, they will give you back so much more. And it isn't just about the hours they work, but in commitment and motivation and enthusiasm for your company. All of those things add up to massively better performance, in my opinion. So uh, that, that sort of feed people in here, 
have them as fodder, feed them out the other end model. I honestly think that it's going to die out because people will vote with their feet. Already there's these rumblings of discontent, which before there was much less of that. And now I think people have discovered life, haven't they? They've discovered the importance of space and gardens and not commuting. That's the other thing. It's not just about flexible working. It's a whole lifestyle thing. But suddenly people have realised, oh, I can work somewhere different and I don't have to spend up to two hours commuting, packed in trains with everybody else, which is not fun. I can actually do a really good job. I can do it from my home office or from a nice environment. I know not everyone can do that. I'm not saying that is the sort of magic wand for everyone. Like giving people that option has opened their eyes in a way that I don't think anything else could. And that's why the companies that are thinking about staff well-being are going to flourish in the future. And those that don't are going to be left behind, in my opinion. And I just want to take Nicola up on this because I, I noticed one of the comments that you made to somebody on, on that post yourself <laughs> because there's a misunderstanding that actually what you're talking about is working from home mm. as opposed to flexible working. And I think we have to make very, very clear that yeah. the two things are really very different because um, taking it back to our area, Stephen, the, the yeah. sort of adjustment, etc. you know, one of the issues here is um you know we we we've been called to go in and firefight for for companies before now in terms of the ergonomic piece um and you know potentially in terms of for myself you know other things like mental health piece etc as well because someone is struggling um and you quite often you come back to as a first point of call you say oh well yeah okay we can get them a different mouse or a different chair or we can make them more comfortable or we can you know we can you give them more rest breaks etc but you think but you're making them work 50 plus hours a week yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isn't, isn't that the starting point of all of this the, the amount of hours that you're working so just just to explain to anyone that really hasn't got this in their head yet mm-hmm. what is the difference between working from home and flexible working so working from home is an option in flexible working is how I would describe it. So flexible working in its truest sense is thinking about when, where and how you do the work. So it could be you're working from home all of the time. It could be you're working from home part of the time and that's the when piece. It could also be you're working from um, not a specific desk. You might have different offices. So um, uh, the very first project I did, we had two sites that were kind of 30 minutes away from each other drive. And what we discovered people were doing is they were driving several times between the two sites to have meetings every day. And we were like, that is just insane. Why are you not sitting in one place to do a conference call? Um, so I'll sit at home and do a conference call. So the, the, the where piece can be home. It can be also, this is a little, a little, I feel like I'm going to rant slightly. This is one of my bugbears at the minute is um, that um, working from home is being badged as the way we've all been working for the last year and yes we have all been working from home in the last year but it's not the same as working from home when there isn't a global pandemic on and we are not in lockdown working from home means you can also work from the local cafe work from a co-working space go into a different office what i loved about the nationwide um, announcement was they're looking at how they can use their network of branches for people to go into the branch and work for the day 
Like, how great is that? So we've all got a local like nationwide branch. So if that's closer for me than going into head office and I want to sit in the office and I need to socialise or see people, isn't that a great place to go? Um, so that's the where of flexible working. Then the when of flexible working is the hours piece. So it is that um, how many days you're working, what hours are you working? Are you working um, like a standard nine to five type hours? Do you, what we've, what a lot of people have done in the last year, which I think is going to be interesting as, as companies move forward with this is because we've been juggling everything over the last year of like some people have been homeschooling or you've had the kids at home or you've had everything else that we've got going on in our lives right now. People have been doing work, not starting at nine and finishing at five in pockets of time throughout the day. So if for some people it's easier to work three hours in an evening, does it matter? Does it need to be between nine and five? And I think it will be interesting to see how that kind of plays out over the next year or two. Um, so that's the when piece. And then the how is um, how much work. So one thing that's often forgotten in flexible working is we think about the where and the when, and we don't adjust the how much, particularly if you're going to be reducing hours, for example. So how many people have you spoken to who a four day week, which means they do a full time job in four days because they haven't adjusted the how much. Um, but the how is also thinking about how am I going to be most productive and being intentional in where and when I work. So do I need to work with a group of people today? So let's intentionally all go into the office or all meet socially somewhere and um, collaborate on a particular piece of work. Or I need to get my head down and do a report today and I need to not be disturbed. So I'm going to lock myself away at home for the day and that's how I'm going to work today. Um, and that they're the three pillars really of, of flexible working. No, thank you. Uh, now, I think what, one of the things that's really interesting in this whole area as well is the types of groups that have really uh, become quite prolific during this whole uh, pandemic period and have sprung up. So um, I was with them yesterday, the, the VA community, for example, and the freelancer community. Now, in a way, what that indicates to me, the fact that there are a growing number of VAs and a growing number of freelancers out there um, and that's happened during this this whole piece is that that actually companies are beginning to look at uh, being able to buy in people's skills and time on a need to basis but surely an extension of that if people want to secure people's skills into their their organization more into a team is actually just allow people more part-time contracts mm -hmm. <laughs> You know? yeah. I mean, any, any comments on been, that? There's always been this weird approach to part-time sort of mm. suggesting it's only for junior members of staff, which I've never really understood because if people want to work fewer hours or, or actually have a better balance with other parts of their life, why would you not want to keep people who are often very skilled, very experienced? And as I think, Steve, it was you who said, why not employ two people? You know, I, I threw in job share earlier. I think that's massively underused because people say, oh, no, you can't work part-time. This is a full-time role. Well, if it's a full-time role, why shouldn't I do part of it? I, I, yeah. That reasoning has always eluded me because often you get people with complementary skills and you actually get overall a better balance because everyone is better at some things than other people. And you can actually tailor those jobs then so that 
one person's weaknesses are compensated by the other person doing that role. So uh, I think the key for me is not just thinking in terms of how many hours are people working, but what are they producing? What are they delivering? If we focus much more on what actually is the point of this job and what outputs or do we actually want from people, then we actually sometimes get away completely from the, oh, when are people doing it? Does it matter if people work in the evening? Does it matter? It's about focusing on outputs and encouraging communication so that people know, you know, if you're in a team and somebody needs to cover certain things, clearly you need to make sure that's happening. But that's a communication thing. That's not about everyone's got to work these fixed hours. They've got to be in at this time. They've got to stop at that time. They've got to be in this particular location. That's about thinking, how can we best deliver? As you said, Nicola, there are certain types of work that are actually better done not in a communal space. Mm. That's, uh, but also people say, oh, but what about those people in, in customer-facing roles? It's not fair on them. There are ways you can be flexible with those people. You can encourage self-rostering and things like that that actually give everybody some degree of flexibility. But it's not just about everyone working from home. And I did think Rishi Sumak, although I didn't agree with what he said, he did have a point in that sometimes you do want to be with other people. That's not necessarily in the office, as you said. That might be um, a sort of going into a branch or a local area where you're meeting some of your other colleagues. It might be a sort of team hub. So let's just not think the only options are working from home or being in the office. The government seems to be presenting this sort of dichotomy where there's only two options. And one is, oh, we all do what we did before. And the other is, we all do what we've been doing during the pandemic as though there's no other choices, which is the thing I find really weird about the way the discussion's going. I agree. Stephen, can I bring you in on that point? What, what did you think of the Chancellor's comments? I, I, I can understand where it's coming from, but I think, as Jill said, but I think you, you do start to, to think an element of self. I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of good things have come out, but is there an element of self-interest in the comments that have been made? Because if no one returns to the office, that, that one extreme, you know, what, what, what's going to happen to all the transport workers? What's going to happen to all the, the you know, the, the catering and hospitality businesses that are around those offices? So I can understand that, mm-hmm. but I don't think you can push that on. I think, like we said, there's, there's two extremes being projected. The reality and the, and the balance is, is the piece in the middle where people Absolutely. do come in and use those facilities on, an, on a need-to-use basis, not because they have to. So I can understand the concern. And obviously, he's then thinking, what about how, how does that impact the revenue? How does that impact the tax? I can understand where he's coming from. The reality is there is going to have to just change. Like the high street is having to change, the reality will be, you know, if, if you look at big city centres and the hospitality setups around those areas, they're not going to be able to rely on X number of thousand people being in a city centre every day. And I'll give you a really live example. I've been into Birmingham city centre today to drop off a sample to a, to a, to a customer. I've never seen, it was almost like a Sunday morning at nine o'clock in the city centre. It was absolutely deserted. 
Now, that isn't a great situation to be in. The reality is, is we're not going to go back to the other extreme. We're going to have to find a happy medium and there's going to be have to be an element of adjustment. And yeah, there'll be some pain, but actually it's, maybe it's a case of juggling resources around. Maybe we don't need as many people to run some of those coffee shops or maybe to drive the buses and the trains. But actually, are there ways we can, through retraining, rebalance and reposition those those resources as humans because you know that, that it's just gonna it's just gonna be a fact that you know but but can people move into different occupations can we move the labor market to the left or to the right or wherever to adjust to those those new needs um, well, we've talked about this before Stephen but I'd, I'd love to get Jill and Nicola's opinion of this but um to give you an example you see I I think this these kind of comments can only come from someone that's living in and around London. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or in, in the yeah, middle of a, a, a city centre. Yeah, a big absolutely. urban area, yeah. Where I am, in the middle of nowhere, in Somerset, um, things haven't actually changed that much, you know? Mm. I mean, yes, there's some shops shut, et cetera, at the moment. You can't, you know, you can only go to the supermarket, but most people only went to the supermarket in the first place. Mm. Um, in terms of the general, uh, you know, Malay of things, things haven't really changed. You know, mm. I'm not get, I'm not popping out every day to Pret a Manger to get me sandwich or or whatever. I'm not having to get a I'm not having to get a bus then a tube then a taxi somewhere. It doesn't. It just doesn't happen. You walk. Mm. There's a really good good thing to do. Um, <laughs> it's just good for your health, believe it or not. Um, but in terms of that, uh, somebody that lives in my street, they work for a, a university. In fact, they work for uh, my son's university up in um, Gloucestershire, and They've said since the beginning of this, it was the first time the other day when they that they drove back up to the university to do their a bit of teaching. Everything else has been online. And they said going forward, we're thinking probably we're not going to do that. We're probably yeah. not going to all commute for hours a day to, mm -hmm. to do this. We we can see the benefits on both sides. And interestingly enough, although some students have said we're not keen on all of this online learning. A lot of others have said, actually, we're really keen on all of this mm. online learning. So, you know, that's a massive, massive cultural change. And as, as we were talking about it whilst doing the bins, as you do, um, he was saying, you know, and it saves me a fortune. I haven't had the commute. I don't have to buy sandwiches on the way in because I've got to leave early, etc. I don't have all the coffee to buy, all of that. You know, it's just saved me an absolute fortune. So these these things are changing. But then he said something really interesting. He said, when we've been discussing it as a university, one of the things that we thought about is that maybe we will get back to better local communities and better opportunities mm -hmm. at a local level with maybe more of a market town mentality mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, market culture on a local basis coming back with the skills actually rather than skills having to drive to, to meet in a, a skills-based place, the skills will remain local and actually yeah. we'll develop more of a, a localised economy. Any any thoughts on that from both of um, you? Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to my partner last night about Rishi because I do have a I do have I have a love-hate relationship with him. Like in some some ways I'm like he's he's been great this last year. I feel like he's stepped up. And in other ways I'm like, oh don't say that Rishi. <laughs> um but um but what I was saying is what I what I find a real shame about the comments that have been made this week is for all of the Tory spiel about you know um 
reinvigorating the economy and trying to kind of break down the north-south divide and all of this, surely this is a great opportunity for them to invest in towns and villages and more, like you say, communities outside of big cities, outside of London, and create like hubs where people will go to work. So we are still, we do still have a high street, but it's your local high street. It's not jumping on a train and going down to London an hour and a half every day um, to do what you could do locally. And I think that they're, they're missing a trick in terms of um, what they could do is try and do lots to encourage kind of local, um, you know, local working hubs and um, co-working and reinvigorating the local high streets. And it, and they would, you know, from an economic point of view, they would hit their goals then in terms of the revenue targets and bringing in the taxes. The economy would get going again, but it would rebalance it out across the country. And I just think they're missing a massive trick there. But, you know. yeah. sure. the, the, pro the problem is, of course, I think, Steve, you hit the nail on the head. This is about politics mm -hmm. um, just as much as it is about economics, because the people who are massively invested in cities are the landlords who own all of those office blocks, uh, the landlords who own all of those shopping centres, and they are prominent Tory supporters, if we're honest about it. So there's a political agenda here, which is not just about, can we actually make this work economically? It's about the types of people who will really suffer if we go along what is obviously a sensible model of looking at, yeah, we just have to move things around a bit. Those people who are already invested in those huge, particularly in London, but not only in London, Birmingham, Manchester, all those big cities where that huge infrastructure is. And now people have suddenly realised, I'm not sure this is what I want to be doing, uh, practically overnight. So that business model has suddenly become hugely uh, fragile, hasn't it? You know, and so there's all of that going on. The government have always had sort of different agendas because they've been saying we support flexible working for quite some time, haven't they? You know, they brought in the right requests. They've, a lot of government departments actually have gone down the route of working flexibly. Yeah. But at the same time, they've always had this slightly sort of strange relationship with it whereby, oh, yeah, but we don't want too many people not commuting and we don't want too many people not having to support the sandwich shops and we don't want too many people mo moving out of large office blocks because of the knock-on effect yeah. for the people who own those. So uh, part of me does sympathise with them because this has all happened so quickly. Yeah. I think if been spread over a longer period I'm not saying they would have then found it any easier but it would have been easier to implement alternative solutions mm. when it's something that literally no one could have seen coming and it's happened overnight in the way that it has it's a real shock isn't it you know yeah. if you're if you're someone with a multi-million pound portfolio and you can see that getting no income whatsoever you know I know Birmingham quite well Steve you know John Lewis moving out of Birmingham, that's a massive big yeah. deal, isn't it? You know, Huge. that's a hub. I know there are other parts of the ball ring, but that's a, that's a huge flagship store mm. moving out of what was a massively successful and popular shopping centre. Mm. How that is going to work, and that's just one, of course, how that's going to work in the future is quite difficult to see, particularly as it's happened so fast. So... Part of me does sympathise with them. Another part just thinks, well, you know, 
just got to suck it up, haven't you? And work <laughs> what you've got and actually start to rebalance your thinking. But pushing an agenda that says our way forward is to force people to go back into the office, whether it's sensible for them or whether they like it or not, I really think is totally the wrong approach. Yeah. They want to start thinking pragmatically, as you say, about how can we actually repurpose things? How can we rebalance the economy? We do have an opportunity to address the North. Uh, it's not even the North-South divide. It's the, the London and the rest London. of the country divide, in my opinion. And I mm -hmm. live in the southeast, so I say that. And I've lived in Staffordshire for many years, so I say that from an informed point of view. It's London and everywhere else, isn't it, really? Yeah, London, it certainly is. Great. Yeah. I do wonder... Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the, sort of not just focusing on where I live, but I do wonder with everything that's gone on, uh, there's a, a project called HS2 that comes in about two or three miles Absolutely. of my house. I do, I do wonder if there's been conversations in the, in the corridors of Whitehall going, yeah, that £32 billion we were going to invest in a train network and actually we don't need the capacity anymore. Exactly. I do wonder whether I do wonder where someone's thinking about slamming the handbrake on quite quickly. I know, I mean, as I say, I know so from locally, you see a lot of work. So committed to that project now, mm. and the work in Houston is so far advanced, isn't it? And mm. old, old Oak Common. Uh, mm. I mean, they did have an opportunity about a couple of years ago, didn't they? To say actually. We're not but then, but then, transport links in themselves aren't necessarily a bad thing. No, um, absolutely. No, I, Public I mean, transport is a good thing. Hmm. It's yeah. where is it? They should have done the second part of HS2 first, shouldn't they? Well, <laughs> the London to Birmingham bit is not the bit they really needed. I mean, a, a bit that none of us have particularly touched on is the environmental impact of all of yeah. this, and 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 ultimately, you know people not driving around in cars so much not getting on airplanes to go all over the world um you know uh, and and ultimately then beyond this having better public transport links so that we can get to here and there better is a good thing in a way but then what do you do when you get to the other end and you know are, are we just seeing that end goal as the wrong thing surely it's fine let's get to the other end of the country or the other side of the country where we don't normally go quicker and faster etc but maybe it's about um you know developing the leisure time at that other end of the country giving people an opportunity to get away from where they live etc to experience something new not necessarily about having to get there for work on a nine-to-five basis any comments yeah, on that absolutely I mean, hasn't one of the really big things that's come out of the pandemic been people rediscovering green spaces, nature, the importance of gardens? So that reconnection with the environment, I think, has been another one of the huge positives that were sort of completely overlooked before, weren't they? You know, so... And, and I think I think in terms of the leisure point, I think a lot of people are doing the staycation again this year, aren't they? And possibly once, we, you know, possibly for years to come, because some people might feel uncomfortable going. Countries might have outbreaks um, or we might just have rediscovered places in this country that are absolutely glorious. And maybe we should be. Yeah. As you say, Graham, maybe the end point is not about commuting to the other side of the country for work. It's about commuting to the other side of the country to go and to visit and spend leisure time or have holidays or whatever. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that is going to grow a different part of the economy, you know. Um, so I, I think it's 
I think in a way it's a little bit blinkered, uh, seeing it as all about, you know, city centres being what city centres are now, etc. I mean, it'd be maybe a bit strong to call this uh, uh, another industrial revolution, but in a way it's got the undertones of that in that it, it could be uh, another industrial revolution in the, our, in the same way that, the, you know, the industrial revolution really did change city centres yeah. uh, and actually, you know, made city centres what they were. Yeah. You know, we could see a real change in that. I, I, you know, from my point of view, do I do I feel that like I need to go into London on a regular basis anymore? Probably not. You know, I used to with work travel into London on a fairly regular basis. Um, uh, and yeah, it's a great place to go for the buzz. But then perhaps I just want to go to London for the buzz of in leisure time, as I say, mm-hmm. in future, rather than necessarily have to do the work bit there as well. Do I really do I really want that? And if that changes the landscape, well, well, fine. Um, but you know, we've been out for walks around here and we've discovered, you know, within a mile of where we live, bits and uh, bits and places that we've just didn't even know existed, you know, and and I expect that's been the experience for lots and lots of people around the country. I would love to see our local centres really developed uh, as, a, as proper business hubs and seeing, seeing the experience kept local um, and, you know, working working to develop the those local economies and 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 all of the local kind of traditions that go with it um yeah. and besides which you know in in some respect uh why wouldn't you want to come here cider for goodness sake you know? <laughs> exactly yeah but you were you were also talking about walking graham you know um we saw how the levels of pollution in the environment went down at the beginning of the pandemic when so there was so much less traffic around and even just those few months just gave us a glimpse of what it could be like you know Mm. we know we've got to do something about reducing the level of of admissions it's just it's just got to be done it's got to be a priority and and once again the government's a bit sort of mixed up with it aren't they you know they're pushing Mm. electric vehicles uh, but at the same time, they're reducing other green initiatives to provide alternative sources of energy. So it, it's more, I think, they've just got to be brave and think of a coherent strategy that covers the environment, transport, work. All of those things need to be much more joined up than they ever have been in the past. And, mm. and that's the problem, isn't it? You know, with one hand, they seem to be pushing a particular agenda, but with the other, they're still tied to the past and the old ways of doing things. Mm. Well, we've talked about this in the past, haven't we, Stephen? I mean, at, at the end of the day, the only agenda that they possibly could have in terms of vehicles at the beginning of all of this, because remember that was that was on the agenda before the pandemic hit, was we've got to move towards electric vehicles and we've got to put a date on that, et cetera. Now, the massive thing that's happened during all of this, we've talked about it before, but I've I've had lots of conversations with other friends about it recently, is I'd love to know how many families are moving from multiple vehicles down and reducing the numbers. The fewer, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's lots of people that have, through this, gone, do you know what, because my work now can be done here, yeah. We don't need two vehicles. Who needs anymore. two cars? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Steve, you 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 obviously were 
ultimately affected by that because yeah. uh, you you were just, I remember just as we began this pandemic, you were just about to change your car, weren't you? Yeah, and then obviously I just with circumstances didn't need didn't need to do it. Um, you know, and and I mean ultimately I, we will need to go back to that, but we've certainly been able to reduce our reliance on transport and certainly expenditure. Um funny enough, just before the call started, I put my first petrol claim in since October last year. Yeah. Bear in mind my my role is an external role representing backer and working with with clients. So I've just put my first petrol claim and, and it was virtually nothing. But, it, you know, I can just see in my own personal consumption around fuel. And I think as well, we you know, we, we got into the, the mixed message piece. I forget the number. Isn't something like 80% of the price of petrol tax or something like that? It's a really, really high number. Is that, again, another conundrum that the Chancellor's got is that, yes. you know, if everyone stops buying petrol, yeah. where are we going to get that revenue from? Do we then have to lump it onto income tax or do we have to put VAT? It, it, it's that whole balancing act that, you know, actually, whilst we want to positively impact the environment, are we going to end up with a vacuum behind it where there's no revenue coming in and therefore do we then have to cut expenditure so it just goes round and round and round doesn't it you know what though there are there are times in history where things just have to physically change yeah yeah right i mean we're we're, you know one of them right (laughs) yeah this is one of them right i mean i don't know i don't know whether everyone around this table is old enough to remember when cigarettes uh um (laughs) got got sadly yes yeah changed but but do you know i mean the, the the agony that go- yeah. the government went through at the time around uh, cigarettes and advertising of cigarettes, etc. Yeah. Can we afford to stop advertising of cigarettes on TV, etc.? Yeah. Because this is a multi-billion-dollar industry, yeah. you know. And putting something in someone's mouth that kills them is a really good thing for the taxpayer. Exactly. You know? Not so um, good for them, but not, great no. for the tax. <laughs> yeah and isn't this a similar situation yeah we've got now it's like that actually we know that that flexible working is good for people we know that actually um for the environment people not having to travel left right and center all over the country all the time to do their work that's that's great for the environment etc but you know it's just gonna hurt a bit you know yeah. it's gonna hurt some people tax-wise some people are going to lose all of their as you say, all of their portfolio is going to go. Yeah. Um, one one thing we haven't covered, and I should probably cover this as I'm an equality, diversity and inclusion advisor, is do. how helpful it's been for people with certain disabilities, how impossible life would have been for people who are juggling um, homeschooling and looking after their kids. But actually some things would have been impossible for certain groups of people and it's made their life much easier we now can actually see a world where people with disabilities are not anywhere like as disadvantaged as they used to be because Mm. getting on public transport when you've got a physical disability is hugely challenging um getting on public transport actually when you've got certain types of neurodiversity is hugely challenging so there are a load there that's just a tiny sample of the number of people who can be positively affected by a different approach to where work needs to be done. Because if you've got your environment actually designed for your disability, that space then can be much better for you to work in. So it's actually recognising that 
once people have done the work to create an environment that's massively conducive for them to work effectively, not taking advantage of that is just not very sensible, is it? You know, making, oh, everyone's got to come in here. Why? Why? If the work doesn't require it. So that, that diversity agenda for me has also been another thing that's been really positively affected not to mention the fact that we also realise that there are certain types of work that people have always said to me, oh, but yeah, customer-facing roles can't be done remotely. But even those, we have somehow managed to deliver remote. I know there are some companies now saying, oh, I need to monitor what time people are working. No, 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 no. Please yeah, I think, we, I think Please we've got to make stop. it clear. <laughs> we've got to make it clear that, you know, there are certain roles. We're, we're, we very definitely are not saying... <laughs> there are roles <laughs> where you can just uh, choose at the drop of a hat whether you're uh, with the client there or then, etc. I mean, you know, my wife's a dental nurse. I'd hate to think yeah. that midway through an extraction, she just says, "Well, I'm going for a lunch break now." I'm finishing now. You know, yeah. Nobody, nobody's talking about that. Um, but as you say, within any role, there's a way at which you can look at the, you know, the flexibility of how that how that role is done. Um, you know, and we're. It's about treating people as adults, isn't it? And trusting them to be sensible. And, you know, the vast majority of people are in that category. And yet we make rules in some organisations for them. I'm not saying there aren't people who abuse systems. Absolutely get that. They are a small minority of people, but somehow we design a lot of our systems around that small minority rather than dealing with those issues on an individual basis because... That's parked in the too hard to do box, so we'll just actually disadvantage everyone. Yeah. That's how a lot mm. of organisations work, isn't it? And it's so unhelpful. What I'd love to end on today is from both Jill and Nicola, um, really, is given the fact that we understand that this flexible working may well be the, the, the way forward, what do we need to, what do companies need to do to make sure that they do it right? Because there is an opportunity here to do it really wrong as well um there is an they opportunity need to help them do it yeah. <laughs> they don't need me because i'm afraid i haven't got time to help them because i'm doing other things but okay Nicola, <laughs> no, seriously, but they they do actually need sometimes professional support because a lot of line managers are still very very frightened that the work will not get done if they give up some of that management responsibility and allow staff to do things for themselves. And I would say that's the biggest key. You need to trust people to deliver and actually then just give them the opportunity to do that. Micromanagement is, in my opinion, one of the biggest barriers in actually making this work. So I don't know what you think, Nicola. Absolutely. Go for it, Nicola. I was going to say, I would agree. So I think, um, and going back to a previous point, I think how companies can um, can make this work going forward is firstly, look at the look at the roles in your organisation and and determine which roles can have what levels of flexibility. So I'm a big believer of every role can have a level of flexibility. But um, so, for example, I'm working with a construction company at the minute. Now, clearly, the people who are working on site cannot be doing like like, it's, like you said, Graham, about your wife. They can't just down tools when they feel like it and go away. So what we're um, what we're looking at is having whilst they have more limited flexibility than say the the head office staff, 
what flexibility can they have? So can they do some self-rostering? Can they have certain times when they are scheduled to be not working and that kind of thing? Um, so that they they still have a level of flexibility. And I think it's about uh, the first thing is determining like levels of flexibility in the organization. So what works for one organization will not work for all. So um what might work and how you want to do it. Then there's the whole culture, trust, leadership piece, absolutely to what you were saying, Jill, which is around, you know, for some companies, the culture is very rigid and the and they want rules in place and they want to say, we're going to be hybrid working, but that means that two days of the week you're in the office and it will be Tuesday and Wednesday for this team and Thursday and Friday for that team. And if that what that's what works for that company for legitimate operational reasons, then that's the way that they will need to do it. Um, and other companies are more like, you know, work whenever you feel like working as long as the work gets done. Um, which brings me to my next point, which is, as, as we've all said before, is measuring those outputs and helping managers get to a point and lots of development and training for managers to start looking at not what when people are working, but what people are doing and what outputs are they producing and what are the outcomes from their work. Because when you can get that right, then it's much easier to then trust people because you can monitor whether they are delivering or not. As you mm. say, you know, there will always be there will always be a small proportion of people who will not perform to the level that you want or who will, you know, yeah. take advantage of the flexibility that you give them. But it will be one or two percent of your population. Mm. What you need to do is deal with that one or two percent as those things arise and not assume mm. the other 99 percent of people are going to be taking the mic because they're not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone. Thanks for a great hour's conversation on flexible working. I, I hope, uh, you know, people get something out of this. What I will do is I'm going to share this link with Jill, with Nicola, with Stephen, so that you can all pre-populate that again on your own accounts, etc. Let's see if we can get as many people watching this as possible, because I think we've raised some incredible points. Um, and, you know, let's let's see what people come back with. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm you know, the revolution. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You'll absolutely. be at the forefront. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think someone's got to do it. Someone has to, to start these revolutions. So um and I by, by no means think it's probably us. But um you know, if we can perpetuate that that revolution and and help push it forward, then that would be a good thing. So um yeah, thanks all for joining. Until the same time next week, um, then goodbye for now. Goodbye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to Wow Ergonomics, sponsored by Bacca Elkhuizen.